and welcome to episode 80 of Can We Still Be Friends, a podcast that tests the limits of the friendship between two people who mistake movie taste for personal morality. I'm Nate Goss, here with Ryan Ebling. It's 2020, and what better way is there to celebrate the beginning of a new decade than by looking back 20 years at American Psycho, a movie that was itself looking back 13 years at the world of greed, emotionless sex, and endless murder that have become synonymous with Wall Street. We've both seen this movie before, but with the popularity of Todd Phillips' Joker came the resurrection of the question of whether showing the mind of violent men ends up glorifying them. The conversation made us want to go back to American Psycho and see how it looks in the stark light of 2020. American Psycho divided critics and audiences. Many people felt like they saw the satire that director Mary Harron and co-writer Genevieve Turner intended with the script. Others thought the movie was in poor taste, and still others found Christian Bale's egomaniacal Patrick Bateman and his penchant for torture and murder downright entertaining. The movie made a modest $34 million and made no waves come awards season. Though playing Bateman was a risky move for Bale, it ended up proving that he could carry a movie in a leading role, and he became a bona fide movie star within the next five years. But as a star-making performance by an extremely, extremely, extremely ripped Christian Bale, enough to make American Psycho a good movie... Or have we had enough of seeing wealthy men getting away with bad behavior? Keep listening. I have all the characteristics of a human being. Flesh, blood, skin, hair. But not a single clear, identifiable emotion. Except for greed and disgust. Something horrible is happening inside of me, and I don't know why. My nightly bloodlust has overflowed into my days. I feel lethal, on the verge of frenzy. I think my mask of sanity is about to slip. Of course, that is Christian Bale in the voiceover narration of Patrick Bateman. One of the many voiceovers. Right. uh, Sequences in this movie. Yeah. One of the more uh, reflective ones, I guess. Yeah. Or confessional. Yeah. 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 Confessional to who? I don't necessarily know. Interesting question. Yeah. So uh, he's he's really laying it out there that he, he knows what the world sees and wants to see, and he knows how he feels. Laying it out there uh, also entirely in that episode, because you get to see him a little nude in the sauna, or in the tanning bed for oh, a bit yeah. in that scene. It's all you happening him, during like a pedicure You see sort him of nude a few times. Yeah, yeah. So in many ways, uh, Christian Bale is laying it all out there yeah. for us as viewers. Yeah. I guess I forgot how often he was naked. Yeah. <laughs> I don't movie. that's one of the things I didn't forget I guess there was a lot I had <laughs> forgotten about this movie uh we, we have both seen this movie before mm-hmm. and I think uh neither one of us was entirely sure of how we felt about doing this movie yeah. or whether we were even thinking it was a good idea to yeah. do the movie um yeah. maybe we should talk about that in terms of first viewings I guess so sure. jump right into the episode yeah it was uh I think I was in high school or college it came out 2000. 2000 so yeah. this is so 20 either, years ago. It was, it was like between 2003 and 2007 that I probably saw this movie. I didn't have any, anybody in my life who was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, but that it was a good movie. I, I hadn't really heard a lot about or even thought a lot about the satire aspect mm-hmm. of it or, or anything like that. I just kind of thought it was like a, a type of horror movie. And I don't think that's entirely true, <laughs> that it's like a – I mean, it, it certainly – it, the the packaging over the yeah. years has presented it that way, but that's what you thought when you watched it. Yeah, and uh, 
I remember being uh, disturbed by it, but as far as it goes, liking it, but not really thinking of recommending it to anybody or wanting to see it again. And that that held true as I as I pressed play on Netflix like uh, this week. I was like, ah, all right, here we go. Um, so I letterbox rated it at three and a half mm-hmm. from when you saw it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I I didn't do a lot of things. I saw it alone. I didn't, I don't yeah. think I really like talked to anybody about it. I yeah. just sort of. But I feel like it's probably a movie that that should be processed. Mm-hmm more than uh more than i did but again like with everything as far as like saying this movie is good it's like yeah what do you mean by that <laughs> yeah like it just wasn't a movie that um stayed with me all that strongly and what did stay with me didn't really compel me to yeah revisit it yeah did you have any familiarity or read anything by brett Easton ellis no uh, just no or after Mm-mm. yeah no, yeah, and this didn't really make me want to seek Jump it out. Jump in, because not dive in. especially because a lot of the things I had read about it were that the book isn't as clear as the movie as yeah. far as what it thinks of Patrick Bateman. Uh-huh. From what I, for, you know, just from what I've heard, um, and I haven't read it either. So, but that has been my understanding too: is that perhaps the movie brought a clarity to the that was never really in the book. Yeah. Um, and not even as much as like what really happened, what didn't happen more, just like even thematically like yeah. what it was going for. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, this is probably a stupid thing because I've never read Brady Stanellis or anything, but I read some Chuck Palahniuk and mm. I was like, that's enough. That's, <laughs> that's the thing. That's, what get, that whole vibe is happening there. <laughs> I get it. I don't yeah. need, I don't need another voice like that. You know, what's funny is I don't think my first time experience is all that different from you, although I think you watched it a lot earlier than I did. I, I didn't really watch it until, if I had to guess the year, it would have been 2006, 2007. It was after college. One of my roommates in the first house I lived in um, post-college uh, owned it. Uh, he had a very large li- uh, movie library. So mm-hmm. by owning it didn't necessarily mean that it was like one of his all-time favorites. Right. Um, but as I was just trying to catch up on movies, if I didn't have one from the library, I would just go to the wall and look for something and grab it and watch it. And American Psycho was just one that I pulled one day. Um, especially at that age, I, I don't think I really had enough of a world awareness even of like yeah. what the satire really even was. Right. So for me, it was just kind of a... It was just odd humor. Right. I got that there, that was, there was humor, humor. in it. Yeah. And I was like, it's kind of funny. But the things I thought were funny were funny because on a very surface level. Yeah. Oh, he's talking about Phil Collins. That's so funny. Right. You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or, you know, like it was, it, I wasn't taking it deep enough, I don't right. think, when I watched it. I agree. Um, and for myself. Now. And then so when it got to like all the killing and everything, I was just like, whoa, this gets really crazy, yeah. you know. And I'm like, wow, this is a crazy movie. And then I'm kind of like, eh, I don't, but I don't know. It's not even that I thought I was confused. I thought I got it. Yeah. But I thought I got it enough. And yeah. I was like, eh, fine. And yeah. then I gave it like, a, I, I think I gave it three or three and a half, which was essentially like, a, liked it okay, not going to really be a huge champion of it. And um, I also don't know how okay I am with everything in it, mm-hmm. but I don't feel like going and thinking about right. it a whole lot more. Right. And yeah. that's about where it ended. And I didn't. So three and a half, is that what you... That's what I had. That's it what at. you landed at. Um, all right. Do we want to go into to to the rewatch then? And, yeah, and dive into the conversation should. here. So I see a lot more that's going on now with the movie. So in a sense, I see the movie as being better than the first time I saw it. 
but I found myself to a degree enjoying it less, hmm. which is what this conversation is probably going to need to, to get into. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it is. I, I feel like I, this is, I, so I'm going first, but I'm bringing nothing to it. Yeah. I didn't enjoy myself. I don't think you're supposed to though. Um, well, I think if you can get on its wavelength, there's a way to enjoy it. Um, yeah. And by wavelength, I mean like you kind of have to see the characters as worth laughing at. Like yes, yeah. a, as, mm-hmm. as being like, I'm enjoying this and these guys are all pathetic. It is funny how big a losers these guys are. I and, agree. And, and, I'm, and, I, they and are, I am you know? able to be on that wavelength. Yeah. And I also, and we'll get into this, understand the wavelength of the tone shift into the violence. Um, it's just, it feels like this is a question that kind of comes up uh, frequently for us where I get it. I appreciate it. I see it, but do I need it? Sure. And that is where I feel like the, the answer for me is n- no. And so I don't know how to rate that, you know, like, hmm. yeah. Um, like this movie is definitely better than the way it gets written off, but I don't know if it has a place in my life. Yeah, I don't. I, I, uh, I, that's up to you how you rate that. Yeah. But I, I think understanding where that rating is coming from, maybe the rating just doesn't matter as much for this episode, you know? I feel like, like it doesn't because what I was going to say was three and a half, which I thought was going to be raising it, but that's what it was already. <laughs> and so, but for different reasons. Right. Maybe. maybe yeah. You know. it, yeah. Well, okay. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll talk through it. Okay. It definitely raised in my estimation. Um, I think I had to become in my own life more political. Sure. To really see what this movie was doing, I, I just think I think it was just completely lost on me yeah. uh, beforehand. And any satire I thought was going on was a more of a a pop culture satire, not a yeah. political systemic satire, right. um, which I see now. And it's early on in the movie. I mean, I kind of realized where it was going, what it it's was. It's right doing. away. It's right away. I was I was with it. I just I was not expecting to like this movie. I was with you where I started it, and I was just like, okay, here we go, you know. Mm. Um, and I kind of made I kind of made you watch Joker too <laughs> beforehand, <laughs> yeah. uh, as a way of thinking through this movie because I had heard that it was doing some similar things, completely mm-hmm. opposite sides of the class structure. Yeah, and so we had both already watched Joker, and then I was going to watch American Psycho, and I was like, not only do I not know if I need to watch this or want to watch this. I just watched Joker and I feel like I've had enough of this. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um but then I was surprised. Yeah. And I watched it with Andrea and she ended up liking it, you know, way more than I thought she would. Mm. Um uh, so I think we were just both pleasantly surprised by it. So so I'm going to rate it to 4 stars. Okay. Um and then what I don't know what to do with is Brett Easton Ellis just seems like such a mm-hmm dickweed yeah. i don't know like it feels very difficult no knowing having read yeah. anything about him to say that he like like did he even get the point of his like, he, i don't know the book know, yeah i'm like really curious and full of admiration for what mary heron and genevieve turner did with this material right even though i don't quite know what the original source material is but i get a better picture of who the author was right it is <laughs> yeah uh, and has even become more since right. um and, and i'm kind of like man this so so even in that regard i just this movie is compelling on a lot of different levels for me mm-hmm. um if it's not for you 
I think that's fine. What I want to make sure that we do is that we have a conversation that's fruitful for both of us. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. No, I don't. <laughs> um, yeah. I think like what, what direction can we take the conversation so that we're not just kind of arguing like, well, why didn't you like no, it the way yeah, I liked no, it? No, it's know? not that. I, like, Because I feel like I did like it or, or I, I get the way that you're seeing it. And I think that there may be – that's what I – that's one thing that I'm looking forward to talking about. It's not like I'm, I'm, I'm coming in here being like, Ugh, I don't do, don't want to do this. I just feel like there are things about it that I feel like I, we can clarify for me. Yeah. Um, Maybe. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, there's probably things that you can muddy up for me. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, it's just one of those things that a movie can hit you at, at a certain sure, yeah. moment. And you're kind of, like you said, I, I saw Joker this week too, which I, I, I enjoyed and I, did you know, too. I yeah. think, it, I think that's a, I think it's a good movie. Um, and like I alluded to, like I, I'm, I'm just a little bit sick of seeing entitled men <laughs> yeah, be misogynistic and racist and violent and selfish and walk away. Right. And so now, you know, we know that that is what happens in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it happens in a lot of movies. Yep. So, is what this movie does with it mm-hmm. interesting enough right. to say something different? Right. I mean, you, you can almost just kind of take that as a fact that we see too much of this. Yes, <laughs> but sure. can a movie take? Can the movie even make a statement about that and just yeah. say it's too normalized, it's too fetishized? Yeah, is this movie too saying something used about that? As a, you know? An excuse or a template? Right. Um, yeah, and I I think it is, but I, I want to talk more about that. Yeah. Then. Yeah. So, starting just the beginning of the movie, I had forgotten how, from the the beginning, how clearly ridiculous mm-hmm. these men are. Yes. That was lost on me the first me too. time I watched it. I don't know how. And it is, I mean, well, obviously, I was like I'm gonna, 20. I'm going to go back to, I think you do need to have a little bit of a political sensibility mm-hmm. to get this movie. Like, you have to bring that to the movie, I mm-hmm. think. If you don't have any understanding of the Reagan era, if you don't have any understanding of the ongoing discussions about class Mm -hmm. and gender in this country, Mm -hmm. and you just go into it kind of like I did in my 20s, a little naive about all of that stuff, Mm -hmm. then it does just kind of look like a weird horror movie and kind of gross. But if you can bring that, it's it's like almost like the movie. In order to work, you actually need to bring some stuff into it. It is fascinating that you, if you are on the, like you said, on the same wavelength as the filmmakers, as Mary Heron and Genevieve Turner, then this movie is going to play very differently. And if you aren't anywhere near that wavelength, it's just going to be lost on you, and you're yeah. either going to be 100 percent disgusted by it mm-hmm. or 100 percent entertained and almost titillated by yeah, it. Yeah, and that and and that's almost where. It, it does become kind of a problem for mm-hmm. people who watch it that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the movie's actually making a statement about those people. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so. Right. And it's it's very funny. Like, it, it is. really surprised me how funny yeah. it is. It is. I mean, very darkly and grossly funny. Oh, it's, it's a but dark like, comedy. But, but it works. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And Justin Thoreau is great um, as uh, Bryce. Shoot. Is that the Gavin Belson? Yeah, no, Justin Thoreau. Justin Thoreau is he's uh, but Justin Thoreau is Timothy, Timothy Bryce, and I actually want to say we had a hard time figuring out which character he was, which is something that the movie yeah. talks about. The movie, the movie does. They're this all constantly. the same. <laughs> they, they all mix they up each all other. Mix, mix up who the other person is, and they can't keep track of which rich white guy is yeah. which. 
It's supposedly their friend. And, and the movie you know. pulls it off very well to the point where I was watching a dialogue scene and something was said that caught that caught me enough to put a note in my journal. Mm-hmm. So I looked away from the screen. And if you don't have the visual of the camera moving around and showing you who's talking, they do such a good job of talking the Sounding exact the same way. way. Yeah. I didn't know who was saying what and when the person had even changed talking when mm-hmm. I was writing the note in my journal and not looking at the screen. Yeah. <laughs> They even it's the same cadence, the same delivery, the tone, the 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 register of the voice is exactly the same in yeah. every character. The every same. male character. Is that Reed Robinson over there? Are you freebasing or what? That's not Robinson. Well, who is it then? It's Paul Allen. It's not Paul Allen. Paul Allen's on the other side of the room over there. Well, who's he with? I'm Weasel from Kicker P, buddy. They don't have a good bathroom to do coke in. Are you sure that's Paul Allen over there? Yes, McDougal's. I am. He's handling the Fisher account. Lucky bastard. Lucky Jew bastard. Jesus, McDermott, what does that have to do with anything? I've seen that bastard sitting The same, like, strange, laid-back intensity. They're feigning disinterest, but they are fighting to win every yes. conversation they're having. Yes. There's a battle going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. But to telegraph or to even show that you think you're in competition is to lose the competition mm-hmm. you have to act like you're not in competition so there's that laid back part but you cannot lose this competition so there's this intensity yeah. that um it's like a detached aggressiveness mm-hmm. you know and i mean that is and apparently it has been the name of the game for white men like entitled white men and boys i read about the sort of like atmosphere of masculinity that that plays out there is clear and strong feelings and beliefs about what they're saying but if you call them on the offensiveness or if you call them on any aspect of it then they were just joking or like i wonder if we're thinking of the same i've been reading and i heard an interview with peggy Peggy orenstein yeah exactly uh she's been writing she wrote a book and and i'm reading it right now it's called boys and sex and um, she she wrote Girls and Sex a couple years ago, yeah. um, and and her she's a researcher, but her mode of research is to do heavy interviews yeah. with, in this case, boys between the age like high school into college, sixteen to like twenty two, right. basically, about sex. Yeah. Um, but it ends up becoming a lot more about masculinity. Yeah. And you're exactly right. And their feelings and, and the feelings they can't show. She and- gets into what we would commonly call locker room talk, mm-hmm. um, which I think is so. Just by calling it locker room talk buys into that concept of you can't take this seriously because it's just this. Yes. And it's all about sort of outdoing one another. There's a competitiveness even in like shocking or net. And it's also a competitiveness in just how aggressive you are. So, you know, sex becomes something that you do to women. It's not something you have with women. She talks about the language of pounding, hammering, banging, nailing. Yeah. Um, And that if you call someone out on it, like you said, um, then you get called a pussy or, you know, mm-hmm. um, these things that basically are meant to tear down your masculinity. Right. Um, and so, yeah, in order to kind of put a shield up around yourself, if these things get sort of bombarded to you in the case of like maybe someone sending you a, a really, really raunchy pornographic image, yeah. you have to say it's hilarious. Yeah. Which I thought, bringing it back to American Psycho, mm-hmm. you totally saw that in that conversation they were having about women and whether they can have a personality or good looks. Right. Um, it was just like such a, in 2000, before we actually had the Access Hollywood tape, before yeah. we had 
you know, Trump's response to Megyn Kelly and the oh and, right, and, yeah, and, yeah. Before you had all of that, you had this perfect example of what locker room talk mm-hmm. looks like, and mm-hmm. in this movie, it is so pathetic. Yeah. It's so stupid. Mm-hmm. It's so it is to be laughed at. It is not. It it is so clear how much of an act it is and yeah. how much of an act of it it is as a, a total sign of theater. Yeah. In theater. Yeah. 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 The only girls with good personalities who are smart or maybe funny or halfway intelligent or talented, though God knows what the fuck that means, are ugly chicks. Absolutely. And this is because they have to make up for how fucking unattractive they are. Do you know what Ed Gein said about women? Ed Gein, maitre d' at Canal Bar? No. Serial killer, Wisconsin in the 50s. What did Ed say? He said, when I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One part of me wants to take her out and talk to her, be real nice and sweet and treat her right. And what the other part of him think? What her head would look like on a stick. <laughs> yeah, it's it's this movie. So it takes that concept of the defense of that by saying it's just hilarious. I just think it's funny. I don't even care if somebody's offended. I didn't mean to offend anybody. I just thought it was funny. And saying no, it is funny. It's funny how impotent it is. <laughs> yeah. It's funny how childish that is. But at the same time, saying, but here's how it's not funny, mm-hmm. by showing this incredible violence mm-hmm. that is the outgrowth of somebody who is able to speak like that yeah. constantly. Since we're kind of on the subject of how the movie talks about women and how it actually acts towards women, I think this movie is incredibly careful. If you think of the most graphic scenes, um, you've got some you know, really kind of perverted sexual things going on. Mm-hmm. But when it gets to the violence with that, it's alluded to. The drawer opens. You see the utensils that mm-hmm. are going to be used. And then you go immediately and it cuts. I mean, that's where I think it, it gives you a break as a viewer, but does not let you off the hook of what the consequences are. Right. It immediately goes to the women leaving the room. And obviously, some terrible, terrible things have happened. And that's what changes us from not being a simple slasher film. Right. Because a slasher film would want you to sit in it. Right. And it's interesting that even the movie alludes to something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre Mm -hmm. in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. But then in the moments where it would have, if it were a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, made you sit with it, it just cuts. Yeah. And that's true of even the violence violence. You know, like when Jared Leto gets axed, you don't see that. Mm -hmm. You know, you see everything up to it and Mm -hmm. you see the splatter. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the movie has given you so many cues that this is not a typical slasher movie and is trying to say something a lot more profound about the causes and effects of of that type of violence. Yeah, and I think to that point, it contextualizes the violence so thoroughly in that disgusting locker room, quote-unquote locker room talk, that that's the violence we witness is the violence of the language. And it's almost, I don't know, it's almost like the movie's point mary heron and genevieve turner's point is we've shown you the violence you've seen yeah, a lot yeah. of violence already so in that sense it is pretty much wall-to-wall violence this yeah. movie yeah it's it's fascinating i don't think i really don't think i knew the first time i saw it that it was written and directed by women no i didn't i, I can tell you that uh, for um, sure it wasn't until years later when i was actually looking at man i wish i would have watched more movies directed by women that i was like american psycho yeah. hey i can I actually have you know like i was like patting myself on the back for the- <laughs> yeah um, and i was like oh but but now it's like and then once i realized that i was like huh maybe someday i should rewatch that you know knowing that mm-hmm. you know i think the first time i heard that it was written and directed by women i was sort of like 
oh, well, I guess that insulates it from all the, you know, yeah. criticism of the misogyny or something. Um, but I didn't really think about what they would be saying. I mean, shamefully, I didn't think about what they were saying as women, not right. just as filmmakers, you know. And, and I mean, so Genevieve Turner is a lesbian. Uh, Mary Heron isn't. Um, and I think that that's really fascinating, too, to think about, because there are elements of homoeroticism and homophobia. Um, and watching that scene where he tries to choke Lewis in the bathroom and then Lewis, uh, like, kisses his hand. Yeah. And, like, sort of. Sees it as a come on. Right. I thought, like, the second he saw it as a come on, I was like, oh, and then there's, like, a gay panic thing. But it's not that simple. No, it's like, not. It's not played for humor. I was also humor. taken a little back. It's not played that. for yes, humor. Yeah. And you know, you would you would expect then that if this were a gay panic thing or something like that, that uh Patrick would just kill him immediately. Right. But instead, Patrick it's almost like one of the few times he he pretty much reacts the same way he reacts anytime anybody sees him yeah. for who he is. God Patrick, why here? I've seen you looking at me. I've noticed your hot body. <laughs> Don't be shy. You can't imagine how long I've wanted this ever since that Christmas party, Arizona 206. You know, the one you were wearing that red striped paisley on Monty Tye. I want you. I want you too. Patrick, what is it? Where are you going? I've got to return some videotapes. That is a moment where you see, like, Patrick has never shown us through voiceover or any other means what's really going on in his head. Um, and it doesn't oversimplify things, I don't think, to say that there's a homoeroticism to his behavior or his mindset or the mindset no. of all the men. No, no, there's, yeah, exactly. And that, if anything, a line shouldn't be drawn to, like, you know, homoeroticism or homosexuality drives violence right. or anything like that the conclusion you would draw is possibly a lot of this violence is actually just a a, a way of kind of shielding that or yeah. like getting you trying know to fit trying into the mold to, yes, of this competitive hyper like overreacting to that and and into trying to you know more aggressively mm -hmm. be hetero or more aggressively be within yeah. that defined structure of what masculinity and sexuality looks like for men and also there's an implicit questioning of what is gay and how would these men stereotype homosexuality or being gay? And it would be a lot of things like caring about your appearance, mm -hmm. being conscious of, uh, you know, fashion and like... Even like getting a manicure or right, a tanning. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but instead, they, they use it as a competition, another way to compete with somebody, which then means it's not gay, it's masculine and and this sort of tightrope that they're walking of acceptable masculinity which is competitive violent angry uh versus unacceptable masculinity which is uh tender and sensitive or you know anything like uh that could be a positive thing yeah. for somebody who cares about their right. their body and cares about oh, the and that's totally if we go back to the, the book boys and sex mm -hmm. if if a guy even shows any sense of wanting to have a tender relationship with a woman. A woman, right. That's so gay. Right. And they don't even mean gay in the sense of who you're attracted to. And in no. fact, that's one so of the, many men these days 
who think they're super masculine would would say, I'm not homophobic. I have right. nothing against gay people. I have gay friends. Yeah. And yet they would have no problem calling someone the F word or right. saying they're gay, right. but they never mean they it would, as they're they gay. Would, they, they would never they're... say that to someone who was actually gay <laughs> right. because that would be wrong. But to a guy who's not gay, they'll being say it gay as a way wrong. to question your masculinity. Right. Because men uh, have physical attraction to women, but no emotional interest in yes. them is what the, the society this, is yes. saying. What this movie does is that sort of situates the competitiveness as sort of this desire to connect with people, but they can't do it in a way that is vulnerable at all. So, of course, they're, they're, the women in their lives are treated horribly and with no connection, no attachment at all. If you were to read that book that we keep talking about, Peggy Orenstein's Boys and Sex, the first chapter is called Welcome to Dick School. And I thought that's just like the first thing that came to my mind when the movie started. It's satire and it's amped up, but only to a few degrees. Right. <laughs> like otherwise, otherwise it would be so foreign you wouldn't really be able to understand it as, you know, representing anything. But right. it's it's well, here's the thing. I was gonna ask you about this. You know, Wolf of Wall Street's a satire of the same thing. Yeah. Different approaches. They both end up becoming extremely absurd. Mm-hmm. Um I think Wolf of Wall Street sticks to reality. Mm-hmm. Um Oh, and maybe yeah. that's more damning right. that the absurdity without a doubt stays within the real. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I also oh, think gosh. maybe at the beginning that really amped up caricatured mm-hmm. construct of people works to a different effect and says some different types of truths that Wolf of Wall Street never really quite hits on. Well, you know? yeah, I, I I think I think Wolf of Wall Street is is keeping itself more to greed and Wall Street specifically and not really getting at masculinity. I think it's almost like saying when you put men in this Wall Street situation, this is what's going to happen. And American Psycho is sort of saying when you have men, this is what happens because greed and then the, the, the Wall Street lifestyle is an extension of the competitive cutthroat, amoral, a emotional masculinity. Um, whereas Wolf of Wall Street feels way more about the corrupt influence of money and greed and uh how that ends up dehumanizing a person and at the risk of repeating myself whereas american psycho is about just how masculinity dehumanizes people yeah men and women and i think too that might be what the movie's doing by focusing on male characters and really placing female characters on the periphery aside from i think maybe christy christy the prostitute and i don't think it's sympathizing but it is definitely like focusing on how is this affecting men and if you can think about that, how is this victimizing people of all genders, um, then there will be some sympathy for men in a way that is healthy for everybody, rather than feeling like we need to see Joker or see American Psycho or see any movie that does sort of try to get into the mind of, man, of, of men as sympathizing with them. You know, right? Because either you're making men feel guilty, or you're holding that up as a as as the way to be. And I think Joker isn't doing that. I don't think Joker's holding up Joker as anybody who tries to make that case has not seen right. the movie. Yeah, the guy is seriously ill. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 also very sad. Like he's a sad right. character. Yes. Yeah. Um. And uh, American Psycho, uh, like very clearly, is not on Patrick Bateman's side, even though the story is no. told from him. Um. But also doesn't seem to care about him nearly no, as much. It doesn't much seem as, to say like, yeah, no, it as, doesn't. As, it doesn't. As, uh, it doesn't. You care about Arthur and Joker, yeah. 
And I don't Arthur think, being the, the Joker character. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think, you know, I don't want the movie to feel sad for Patrick Bateman. Right. You know? It would it would cut the satire and the humor that it needs to have. Mm-hmm. I do think the movie, though, um, and it, it's questionable how it works in the movie, because I also feel it's kind of the most out of place thing in the movie. But maybe it had to be there is you do have where he seems to be breaking down in his office and mm-hmm. he's calling the lawyer and confessing to everything. And if anything, the sadness in it is I know this is inside of me. Why can't anybody else see it? Mm-hmm. And sort of like a cry of like, I know this is messed up. I did some terrible things. And then there's the that's the sadness. Almost like, can somebody please can someone acknowledge check this? me on this? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> can someone hold me accountable? Like, is you nobody know? seeing what I'm doing? Howard. It's Bateman, Patrick Bateman. You're my lawyer, so I think you should know I've killed a lot of people. Some escort girls in an apartment uptown. Uh, some homeless people, maybe five or ten. Um, an NYU girl I met in Central Park. I left her in a parking lot behind some donut shop. I killed Bethany, my old girlfriend, with a nail gun. Uh, and uh, some a man of a little. And that's well, that's. I think that's something that the movie is doing as well. That. Everybody looks the other way on the locker room talk. Everybody looks mm-hmm. the other way on the the just every way that the men in this movie treat women. We look the other way when it isn't violence, outright chainsaw violence. We look the yeah, other way. Yeah. Why would we not expect people to look the other way when it is right. and then even, outright chainsaw violence? Yeah. And this, this is something that to me makes this movie a four-star movie is this is 2000. And it's not to say that these were necessarily new things in 2000, but the way it held up a crystal ball to yep. where we were going mm-hmm. is really astounding to me in a couple different ways. I'll name a few. Mm-hmm. So one of which is what we're talking about. The closing line of basically him saying, my confession means nothing. That is so damning mm-hmm. because what it's telling you is that we know this is going on, that the people who are doing it know what they're doing. And may even cry for help, maybe not, but some may, and it won't make a difference because that's how systemic this is. Mm-hmm. And the idea of that being systemic in 2000, yeah. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. outside of academia. Right. And so to kind of really force this as, no, you know, we're not going to pin this on this being about this one psychotic killer. We're going to pin this on being a system. Mm-hmm. That is something that I think we're in the Me Too era just now really in the popular level coming to terms with right. and what that means and how does that confession mean anything to mm-hmm. us? And that confession only, that is happening. The only reason yeah. we see Patrick Bateman's murders is because we're following Patrick Bateman. Like if right. all we were doing was looking at the conversation, he is no more outlandish than any of the other men right. that he's with. And the fact that to the, the lawyer point that they are think, all interchangeable. They're interchangeable, <laughs> and the fact that the lawyer thinks it's hilarious. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, right. He confesses right. it to the lawyer, yes. and he it's says, so funny. "Oh, that's so funny, man. That's so hilarious." And he's like, "No, no, no." no. Yeah. <laughs> and then when he tells me he's serious, he's like, "That's a little too far. I don't want to talk yeah, to you." Let's anymore. not do not this. Like, okay. Yeah. Crystal ball moment. One hundred percent. Yeah. Another crystal ball moment. This is supposed to take place in the eighties, so pornography is not as widely available as it is today. Right. But in here, here is a guy who has, you know, whether it's because of his means or because he lives alone and doesn't have to worry about people seeing him, he has open access to a lot of pornography and watches it regularly. Right. I don't think the movie is making a strong statement about pornography, but what it is saying... But it's not not saying it. It's not not saying anything. And what it is saying is that the pornography at the level he's consuming it is just becoming another thing. 
barely even gets him aroused. Just like Texas Chainsaw Massacre it was right. just another thing. It's he just had another on. thing. And it it's hard to even know what the exact stew is that creates this psycho killer out of that. Mm-hmm. And the movie's not that heavy handed to say pornography and slasher flicks make people into psycho killers. Right. That's not what it's saying. Mm-hmm. But what it's saying is look at how numb this guy is when mm-hmm. he watches that stuff. Are you okay with that? Right. And this is a guy who watches pornography daily during his exercise routine. So it's barely even part of sexuality for him. It's part you know? of his self-care. Yes. Now in the world of Pornhub, mm-hmm. where for a large, I would say majority of men, pornography has become a daily routine, a oh. part of self-care. Mm-hmm. What is that doing to the way that these men growing up now, coming of age, are thinking about what sex is, what their relationship sexually should be with Mm -hmm. women, Mm -hmm. what women's role in sexuality should be, because you Mm -hmm. certainly see how it played out for Patrick Bateman's character. So again, you know, another crystal ball moment, another crystal ball moment being that I'm sorry, I don't, I don't, I don't always want to bring this podcast into politics, but does this guy not just look like Donald Trump Jr. to you? Yeah. (laughs) Like, and I mean, I certainly don't idolize Donald Trump Jr., but there is a large chunk of this country that still does and thinks that's manhood. That is what masculinity looks like. Mm -hmm. And they don't think that's pathetic. Mm -hmm. But that guy is a pathetic loser. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know why, I'm sorry, watch American Psycho. (laughs) And any bro who watches American Psycho and thinks that guy's cool, (sighs) Genevieve Turner talked about this in one of the extra features where she's had people come up to her and say, Oh, I love American Psycho. I'm so Patrick Bateman. And she always says to them, well, you're, then you're either a dork or a serial killer. Which one is it? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> like, this guy is not cool. Right. He also isn't his own person. None of his thoughts, quote unquote, of music or anything are original. And it's part of Bale's performance. It's so clearly practiced and read, and he's hearing it from someplace else. And what does he always name as like the best songs on albums? It's the hits. The hits it's yeah. the radio hits. Like he that's has, a good point. He, he yeah. doesn't. He has nothing to offer that's original. Um, the music itself. Now, I'm, I'm a huge Genesis fan and Phil Collins fan. <laughs> you are, but the, <laughs> but but the, I think the point of the movie is that the music itself is not all that original, right? And in fact, when he talks about Huey Lewis in the news, the stuff he doesn't like is the early stuff that's too new wavy, right? Right. <laughs> he wants it to come more. He wanted the commercial stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Um, more about that. Um, th- those 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 passages where he's talking about music. It also struck me how. Not only sexually, he has no sign that he sees women's agency or role, but in conversation, they are there to hear his thoughts on whatever he wants to talk about. And the scenes with uh, Christy, she barely talks. And I think to a degree, any man raised in America has echoes of Patrick Bateman in them. Mm. And for me, <laughs> the, the music criticism, <laughs> well, there's that, but the idea that anything I have to say is interesting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Why don't we start a podcast about it? Yeah, right. <laughs> <Fuck>. <laughs> <clears throat> Son of a 
bitch. You're right. <laughs> oh, go ahead, though. I wasn't. But no, it's something that I I know in myself that I certainly in my younger years, and I mean not even that much younger years, and I I, I know I still do it, but I also am more aware of it, and I'm trying to curb it. But it is one of the things we've been socialized to believe about ourselves as men is that anything we want to talk about is our right or duty to talk about. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting and it is informed and it is original and women um, either should or want to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. men in the case of Jared Leto. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, honestly, no, definitely. <clears throat> but, but and you're right. I mean, in, 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 in but he had to drug Jared Leto so Jared Leto wasn't exactly. talking. <laughs> it was more about I got to get this out, and it's almost like he wants to just hear himself. Mm-hmm. He he needs to hear himself mm-hmm. talk about this stuff. Right. Do you like Phil Collins? I've been a big Genesis fan ever since the release of their 1980 album Duke. Before that, I really didn't understand any of their work. It's too artsy, too intellectual. It was on Duke where. Uh, Phil Collins' presence became more apparent. I think Invisible Touch is the group's undisputed masterpiece. But isn't part of the point of that? Because, I mean, you could, you could if you go too far down that road, you can wallow in this thing of, I've got nothing good to say. Yeah. Like, I, but what I think matters, and that this movie also illustrates, hey, there's nothing wrong with you espousing why you love an album. Mm-hmm. Make sure the person you're talking to cares enough to listen to it and that you care to listen to them. There's no listening going on in any mm-hmm. of this movie. No. Actually, the one that probably listens the most is Christy. She at least listens enough to do her job mm-hmm. and make him feel validated with some innocuous answer she can give that isn't going to make him angry with her. Right. And she listens enough almost out of a self-preservation, like, I better listen to this guy. I'm getting paid to do it. And if I don't do it right, something bad could happen. You which, know? which, by the way, minus I'm getting paid to do it, is the way many women navigate their relationships with men. I better listen to this guy because something bad could happen if I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you finally have the other woman in the, the threesome um, who is willing to throw it back at him a little bit. And kind of make fun of him for listening to Whitney Houston. Um, mm-hmm. But she's not really listening either because no. she's more part of that world. Right. The Reese Witherspoon character is not listening mm-hmm. at all. Nobody's listening to anybody in this movie, which is part of the comedy, but also part of the tragedy. So I keep thinking, too, about the title American Psycho. Mm. And the fact that ostensibly Patrick Bateman is the American Psycho. But like I said, the only thing that sets him apart from every other man in the movie is that we see his murders. And a- again, at the at the at the risk of uh, triggering hashtag not all men, I think masculinity is the American psychosis, like capitalistic American masculinity. I think you're probably gonna have to expand on that a little bit, um, because it has been socialized and it's been ingrained and it's been taught this view of the world that is a 100% unrealistic view of the world that the the things that men are are socialized to believe about themselves about women about what it means to be a man about acceptable behavior is all false as far as its reality or its goodness or its inherentness in being a man and so then 
if you see if the way you see the world is not the way the world is, that's a form of psychosis, right? Like you're you're insane. And um, his gets to the point where he sees the ATM telling him to do things. Yeah, but I don't think metaphorically that's a big step to say that the ATM or money makes men do things that are insane and women. Because, yes, 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 because, yes, 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 yes. Well, absolutely. And, and that is not part of my not all men. No, I know. My point but you're is right. that even because of the masculine worldview that we have, it's also forced women to do the same. Yes. You realize in that movie, it's shown. Christy has learned from her mistake of going with him the first time. He comes back, and she is even ready to, at all, by all means, say no to him. Mm-hmm. And the thing she cannot turn down, yep. the right amount of money. Mm-hmm. And the movie doesn't even criticize her for that or make you as a viewer th- you're really sad because you're kind of like do not do this mm-hmm. you know what's up mm-hmm. but it's funny because in so many horror movies you're like that person's so stupid don't go in that door mm-hmm. in this movie you're looking at her and you're, you're saying that person's so stupid but i get it because it's money it's greed and right. it's not that she's even greedy she's in a separate yeah, category right. of desperate mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. yeah this movie's got layers yeah and the way he treats the homeless man right why don't you just go get a job mm-hmm. make america great again right as far as and i'm he concerned says, yeah, you know and like he tells him he'll help him the person who has money who has the yeah the the, the, the power to hire people tells him he's, he's gonna help him then he shoots him in the stomach right and it's like that's again metaphorically there's no stretch there so then christy who is driven by money in that situation but is also driven by money out of desperation her desire for money is very different, but part of the same system yeah. that it's all coming from. And her death is, as I think about it, so profoundly sad. Again, on like a meta, like certainly for the character in the movie, but on a metaphorical level, this is, woman yes. running door to door, screaming, and nobody comes. And her death is one of the the most gruesome and most public. And she's doing it while she is literally falling down the stairs. Mm-hmm. If you were to think of that as the rungs of success, right, right. she is having to run down them to flee. Mm-hmm. Again, metaphorically, as he's running with a chainsaw for a dick. Yes. Like, <laughs> and I think, too, the question as to whether or not he really did it, you know, whether it was all in his mind. Yeah. I, to a degree, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Certainly there are two different readings, but they both end up in the same place. That if he didn't actually do it, does that matter? Because he would. And it isn't getting away with murder that makes him do it. It is everything else that we let him get away with in front of people, mm-hmm. in restaurants, in the office, yep. uh, in a dry cleaner. So it's it seems to be asking the question... Does it matter if he got away with the violence, if he got away with everything else he was doing that was all part of that violence? yeah. And there's also something really interesting in my mind of he did do it. Yeah. And they did clean up Paul Allen's apartment and find all those bodies and just... Because there was real estate to be made. Right. You know, I I, I think both readings are so accurate. Mm -hmm. You know? No, that's what I'm saying. Like whether you want to see it one way or the other there is the same point being made or a, a similar point being made that is equally damning of what it's what yeah. it's taking aim at and yeah there is very much you could read the realtor's performance as i know who you are 
and know what you did, please leave. Yep. Do not mess this sale up. Yep. Exactly. You could read that both ways, and it was mm-hmm. it both would be convincing. See now, and Mary it, Heron did that a few times because um, with Willem Dafoe's character, Detective uh, Kimball, I think his name. Yeah. She actually, I read she had him perform those scenes where she, he's talking to Bateman three different ways. One where uh, he, as the detective, knows he did it. One is the detective where he thinks he did it, and one is the detective where he has no clue. Mm. And she cut all three performances together. so you're never getting a straight story right yeah and if you don't mind i'm actually going to bring in the always amazing tasha robinson and her essay back in the days that the, the glory days of the dissolve which addresses this exact thing which is whether he did it whether he didn't do it that the answer doesn't matter but the conversation does mm. um and and the way she puts it is if his story is just about one axe happy serial killer it's a horror story but it's a bigger, smarter, more chilling satire if it's about an entire crazy society so lost to itself that sociopathic behavior goes unremarked and unpunished. Mm-hmm. So much of the debate about the film is really a debate about how responsible Bateman is for his actions. Is the world only sick enough to turn one man mad? Or is it so absurd that any madman can express any amount of insane savagery and still get away with it? Is this a scary story about a maniac or a more frightening story about a larger systemic failure? Mm-hmm. Well, there it is. There it is. <laughs> Yes, we're done. Best buds here. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then in keeping with the reflection that the movie is causing, like Tasha Robinson wrote that years ago, and we still feel the need to talk about it. Like where it's a revelation. <laughs> right. Uh, so 20 geez. years. Well, actually, I don't know. remember what year they did their film, but yeah. Or their film of the week. Review thing. Yeah. Well, it was several years ago because that dissolve hasn't been around for a yeah. while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as far as getting away with stuff, too. The thing also that makes the movie like that damning critique is that he is not a good liar and not a good killer. <laughs> right. <laughs> he is he is incompetent. And that's and part of the, still gets away with it. And what's kind of a brilliant stroke is that that's part of the comedy. That's true. That's the funny part. Yeah. Is how awful he is at this stuff. Mm-hmm. He's carrying a duffel bag or an overnight bag with his body in it and trailing uh, blood. Trailing blood, you know. He's not good at this. He's never it, his so, excuse is I've got to go return videotapes, which is every so time. funny. Yeah, it's I have to go return a, some videotapes. I, I, <laughs> his delivery of that cracked me up every yeah. single time. You know, and and so there's he's never a good liar. He's never a good killer. We also never see him doing his job. Yeah. Oh yeah. He's so always, we, there's no competency at all. Right. But he is wealthy. He is powerful. He gets away with everything. That. I mean, come who, on. Who are we describing here? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I anticipated this would happen, that my thoughts would be clearer and or be clarified for me, my feelings. And I really do think that one of the things that I uh, don't enjoy about watching this movie is I, I, of course, disapprove like so much of what's happening, but just some of the things that are inherent to American masculinity, of course, affect me. Yeah. And, um, I hate this too when people say that movie is depressing, but the movie depresses me, which again doesn't diminish what it's doing or my appreciation for what it's doing or my thought that it's a necessary movie and it's brilliant in its depth. But it's just as far as a viewing experience, yeah. it's not one I don't want. It's well, not one I want to have again. Look at it this way: you could be kind of the ideal viewer of this movie because oh. think mm. about it. Mm-hmm. 
a lot of people are going to watch this movie kind of the way I did in my 20s as right. a surface level Which I weird too. horror movie, dude, yeah. you know, and they're kind of missing the point. Mm-hmm. There are the people that are going to be like, oh, I get it. I know the point. Man, that is damning to those other people, right. those men who are not like me. And that's the worst way to watch this. That's equally as bad. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of that ideal viewer that says, no, I get it. I know what it's doing now. And man, does that suck. You're, you're internalizing the movie in a way that I'm sure Mary Heron and Genevieve Turner would love for people, more men, to probably process this movie that mm-hmm. way. Uh, perhaps it should be a depressing experience for every man who watches it. That's true. It's art that certainly maybe moved you in a certain way. Um, yeah. But... Uh, if it, it, but if it puts you in a bad headspace, that's the thing. Is what you know? You you want something that's going to be transformative, not yeah. just bring you down. Right. You know? and yeah. Does it, and then does it have the power to do that? Does American Psycho go that extra step of not just dragging you down, mm-hmm. but offering a way to be transformative? Well, it feels know? like for you, it did. I think so because I think it it lifts the veil in a way that I think is approachable because it's funny mm-hmm. and because. It's darkly entertaining. Mm-hmm. These are all things that can sort of float around in your mind. And right. if you have something tangible like Patrick Bateman to yeah. attach them to, it can be transformative if in those moments when I'm the guy trying to tell you why this album is incredible and not really caring if you're listening to me or not, I just want to hear myself talk about it. Right. Maybe Patrick Bateman will come into my mind and I'll say, you know what? I'm doing that thing. I don't want to be a part of that thing anymore. So, I mean, honestly, it it's like potentially five-star territory for what it's doing. Sure, yeah. I get what you mean. But as a viewing experience, for me, it's closer to like three and a half. Yeah. I think the big difference between us is that you were just not able, for whatever reason, to just have as much fun with it. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't see I, I don't see anything fun with it because the, the humor to me is so dark. Yes. And so and like, it is. And again, to the movie's credit, it doesn't do it in a way that gets you to laugh with or laugh off. It you laugh at laugh it. at yeah. because the alternative is way too dark. Mm-hmm. The alternative is something maybe closer to Joker, which is unsettling. Sure. It's a very different movie for different reasons. They both have to do with the 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 society the systemic aspect right. of it the social safety nets and the social in American Psycho's case the social apparatus that is protecting these people right but I think Joker is much more in that realism camp that oh, wants yeah. you to sit with well, the, yeah. how unsettling it is yeah you know? the other thing to I think American Psycho's credit and the and to Joker's credit as well is that. Joker looks for an identifiable mental illness and American Psycho does not. Mm-hmm. There isn't any clear diagnosis which sets it up for the idea that society's socialized view of masculinity is a form of psychosis. So yeah, they're doing different obviously doing different things, but they're getting at very similar issues. Um and the joke and Joker's never funny. <laughs> no. No, that movie is just disturbing from the second it starts till it ends. Yeah. yeah. But I think that was a good call to watch that one. Well, I I, pers- I I feel like I always feel like we're best buds, even if we've got these differences. <laughs> these qualms. Yeah. Just because in this situation, I wouldn't feel the way I feel at the end here without having our conversation. And you always do a really good job of helping me sort of like sort through <laughs> some things. Well, thank you. Uh, so, uh 
but I think we both reached My a lot of yeah best, best buds. I I think uh, yeah best buds here too because I mean I was gonna say four stars uh, just initially from the rewatch. I'm still gonna stick with that yeah. for me, but well, like I'm still gonna stick with three and a half. But but yeah. like I feel like it's a more emboldened four stars. Like I feel like you even brought things up that I hadn't really thought about that made me even trigger some things that yeah, you know definitely. were like oh yeah, and then there was this and there was this and you know which happens a lot in this show, which is a lot of fun. So yeah, for us, yeah, yeah. at least. <laughs> I don't uh, know if it is for anybody else, but yeah. Um, <laughs> But if you're you're still with us, we'll uh, we'll have another episode after this. So let's talk about uh, what we're gonna do next time. Sounds good. All right. So it, next month, February, the month of love, we tend to usually take this time to do a uh, romantic movie of some sort. So we're gonna do the same thing right. this month, and we also have another tie-in in the lead of the movie we are going to watch. Mm-hmm. Also happening to be not only nominated for best actress, but. Kind of the front, kind runner. of the front runner, and 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 also golden now Golden Globe winner mm-hmm. for best actress in Renee Zellweger. Right. And if you haven't uh, kind guessed of a resurgence it. for her now. Yes. Yeah. And this movie's sort of from her heyday. Yep. So yeah, romantic comedy, Renee Zellweger. Uh-huh. We're gonna be doing Down with Love. <laughs> yeah. Nope. Nope. Well, what are we doing again? All right, we are doing Bridget Jones's doing Diary. Bridget Jones's Diary, which. Jones, Joneses, Jones. I would say Joneses. Joneses, yeah. I think you're right because it's not like the plural possessive. Right. I should know this because my last name ends with an S. Yeah. So you you would say Nate Goss's diary. Yeah, I would. But Bridget Jones's diary. Bridget Jones's diary. Renee Zellweger, uh, Colin Firth. Mm -hmm. Classic movie. It seems like. I think at this certainly classic book. Classic romantic comedy for sure. Yeah. You know. Um, And I've never seen it. I've never seen me neither. Any of them. It was a big thing. I think, especially in England, I feel like I feel like Brits really. Is it a British movie? Uh, yes. Like, was it produced and made as a British movie? That's, or, a, that's, a, that's a great question. Or is it a Hollywood movie? Because you know? would would a British-made film cast an American in an iconic, really an iconic British role? Sure. Yeah. Is I, it iconic? I don't know. I don't know anything about who Bridget Jones is. Well, the book is supremely popular. Like she's sort of a. a, a a figure now of British pop culture. Yeah, I think so. Like Harry mm-hmm. Potter, Mary Poppins, Bridget Jones. Bridget Jones. I get this feeling like she's an iconic character, but we don't know. That that will be our homework. We've got a month to research whether or not Bridget Jones is an iconic figure of British culture. Yeah, pop culture. Pop culture. Not British like culture has a lot. That's like the Queen, right? Shakespeare, Helen Mirren as the Queen, right? And Shakespeare, yeah. Jane Austen. Sure. Which I think figures into this movie, Bridget Jones' Diary. That's I'm not sure. That's your feeling as well, true. Well, and that could just be a subconscious Colin, Colin Firth, Firth is in it. He's Any, Mr. Darcy. Every movie and, with Colin Firth has a Pride and Prejudice <laughs> connection. Right. You know what was weird about the King's Speech was how little <laughs> they referred to Pride and Prejudice when they were making it so, so obvious it was, it was so, about it. It was so obviously alluding to Jane Austen. Now, all right, so here's the thing. Colin Firth's character na- is named Mark Darcy. I th- I told you, I think that you there is an intentional Pride and Prejudice reference in this movie, in this movie and book somehow. Okay. So listen to this. In 2007, The Guardian, a British publication, named Bridget Jones's Diary as one of the 10 novels that defined the 20th century. Whoa. Um, joining Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, F. Scott Fitzgerald's wow. The Great Gatsby, wow. Anne Frank's The Diary of a Young Girl, 
J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye, among others, because the list was 10, and that is only six. So does this mean we have to read the book, too? I don't have time to do that. We might, we might have time. To read the book and watch the movie? Yeah. Well, is it a long book? Do you know that? Reach into your subconscious. Is it... Uh, I want to say... What do you feel? What do you feel? Is it uh, a long book? I, I'd say it's like... Uh, 200, 200? I was going to say 273 pages. Oh, I was going to... That's what I'm going to say. I was going to stick to like your, 220, your 230. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's find out. 288 pages. 288. You win. I do win. Closest without going over. I was going right to say one page. <laughs> one page. One very, very long page. Right. It's a scroll, really. <laughs> so, um, yeah, maybe we will read it before... Okay. I, I'm not against reading it. I'm just February is it's it's a hard deadline for me. February generally is a tough. I, don't don't set a deadline in February <laughs> right, for Nate. Right. I got too much on my can't mind. Say, can't first of say all, how it's going to go. First of all, it's a short month. It is, but it's a longer month this year. It's a leap year. Of all the Februarys, you're going to start okay, trying to be slippery you're, on. You're making a good point here. Maybe this is the February Bridget to read Jones's Bridget Jones' Diary. Yeah. diary. Anyway, um, if you've seen Bridget Jones' Diary, which we assume there are people who have, oh, because I mean, it's it was a, a huge, huge hit. hit. Especially if our, our, our British audience is going to have some things to yeah, say about this. They, will. Uh, they might be they're easily be offended like, by our ignorance of this. Oh, they're going to be so offended, so frustrated. They're going to, like, you know, British people were sitting there yelling, 288! <laughs> Right. 288 pages. <laughs> you idiots. <laughs> you gits, I bet they said. Right. We encourage the feedback. The feedback. We do. And there's a lot of different ways to give us that feedback, one of which is on our website. And we still be friends.net. There you can comment on any of our past episodes. Look yep. through those archives. The best way to talk about Bridget Jones's diary to us is through email. Right. Way to do that. Send your messages to feedback at canwestillbefriends.net. Right. Or you can you can reach out to us on Facebook, search Can We Still Be Friends podcast. Or you can send us a uh, leave us a voicemail. Mm-hmm. Give us a call at 847-306-9532. That uh, voicemail will kick right in. Right. Uh, wait for the beep. Right. And uh, leave us your message. Yeah. Um, or you can always uh, record an audio clip File and email something. it to us. Yeah. You know, I, I have to say, in our last episode, yeah, we had uh, real enhanced, uh, real enhanced audio quality on some of those. Yeah. I could tell, especially from uh, Andrew or AJ. Mm-hmm. Man, that was coming from that was coming from a real mic. Mm-hmm. I could tell. Mm-hmm. Anyways, yeah. So you could do that. Uh, you can also, uh, you know, back to the social media thing. You know, you can't forget yeah. about Instagram as well. The kids are all. All, all yeah. a Twitter about Instagram. All, right. They, they, all, they can't stop a TikToking about that Instagram. <laughs> oh, should we get a TikTok? <laughs> I don't even know. Okay, this is how out of touch I am. Yeah. I know of TikTok. Right. I know it's a thing. Uh-huh. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it does. I had a landmark moment in my life where I made the conscious choice to leave myself behind. On that. I said... People are talking about TikTok. And I about picked up my phone to look it up and I'm like, I do not care. This is <laughs> this true. is where this is where they leave me. So should we get one? <laughs> <laughs> A bunch of videos of us being like I'm not sure. Is it videos? Do we don't know if it's videos. It is videos. Oh, I know so that. You know you know some. I cannot about not know about it because I teach high school students and I'm like honestly. I'm seeing way more TikTok open than Snapchat. But I just, I, I want to make it clear for the record. 
I do know less about TikTok than you do. That's fine. I would. I also want the record to show that I did not seek out any of the knowledge that I have. That's fine. About TikTok. That's fair. But we are on Instagram. Can we still be friends pod? All right. So yeah. Thank you so much for listening to our American Psycho episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Uh, We would love to hear, even if you didn't, let us know. And we look forward to Bridget Jones's diary. This is like a book club and a movie club for this. Yeah. We could have done that with American Psycho, but Brady Stanis does not deserve that. (laughs) So anyways, uh, we hope to catch you next month. But until then, uh, take care of yourself. 